Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My name is Sabina Brennan and you are listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My guest this week is Dr. Rupi Ujala, NHS doctor, best-selling author and host of the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. Rupi is passionate about lifestyle medicine and is on a mission to help people use food as medicine and a recipe for health. Rupi shares his personal health journey, explaining how, prompted by his mum and a devastating diagnosis, he changed his diet and lifestyle and not only avoided serious heart surgery, but also reversed his heart condition. Rupi, the picture of health, despite a hectic schedule, endearingly admits that sometimes he fails to follow his own advice. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) but never fails to do three things every day that help him to survive tough and stressful times. Keep listening to find out what they are. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. I want to make sure that I get the app stuff in at the top. So your app, so exciting. I downloaded it and I got the lovely folks. You can actually get a seven day free trial, which is a fantastic way to do it. Also on top of that, sign up and get a little email of some fab recipes for 14 days. And they absolutely look delicious. Oh, great. They really do. And so healthy. Thank you so much. It's been a long journey to get to this point, actually. Um, I had this idea of creating the headspace for healthy eating about two and a half, three years ago, where I was just trying to figure out, okay, how do we help people eat well every day? And so we actually invited about 15 people to come to my kitchen studio a couple of years ago. We interviewed them uh, about what the barriers to healthy eating were, how they engaged with recipes what they preferred, was it video recipes or step-by-step, you know, how they actually meal planned, if they meal planned at all, how many people in their household. Like we did a real deep dive with individuals about an hour each. And then we started mocking up some ideas about what this platform could look like. Uh, You know, was it going to be a course? Was it going to be something that you do on your desktop? Um, We had a whole bunch of different ideas about what this could be. And then we came to the simplest solution, which was, a recipe uh, library uh, that you have on your app. We'll eventually have it on iPad and desktop as well as Android, but right now it's just on the iPhone. And with the addition of the fact that you can also filter according to health goals. So what me and my research team have done, have looked through hundreds, if not thousands of papers uh, on nutritional medicine, looking at specific areas like 
but skin health, brain health, mental health, cardiovascular health, general well-being, inflammation. And I have to jump in there yeah. and say, I was so delighted to see that, yeah. that you had brain health in there, because as you know, that's what I'm passionate about. Mm. And mm. particularly when it comes to eating, you know, rubbish in, rubbish out, and people often don't think of their brains. So I was really pleased to see yeah. that section. But I think that's also really, really smart way to do it you know what people's goals are so many diet apps diet books things that you can sign up for are totally focused on weight loss yes you know on the aesthetics i mean yes some of them will say it's weight loss for health Mm. uh, which is great but most of us and most of us are driven by the aesthetics that's just part of being human you know anyone who has had any sort of chronic health condition or anyone who's even just going through things like menopause etc they want to do everything they can to minimize the symptoms and like that something like diet yeah another thing i wanted to ask you so when you say we who's we because i often wonder about that actually four o'clock this morning yeah my husband woke up he couldn't sleep i wasn't sleeping with my migraines and we ended up chatting and you know we're talking about our day and who are you interviewing he said and i told him he said oh will you ask he says is that the really good looking chap and I said yes it is I said he's a great advertisement for his lifestyle and he said yeah his lifestyle he said would you ever ask him how does he do it all like how does he do it all how does he fit everything in (laughs) I know I feel sometimes I feel like a bit of a fraud because the many times where I have to remind myself you know you really do need to practice what you preach because particularly over the last couple of months bringing the app to launch I was doing 16 hour days I was working at the weekend I was working well after 6 p.m every day which is my sort of designated hard cut off for looking at my screen so I was doing everything wrong and I'm still trying to figure out like how I actually do it whilst looking after my well-being as well so in the spirit (sighs) of transparency I think it's important to be honest about okay right now it's hard do you know what? You have really just made my day because mm-hmm. I've been really struggling. And it is very hard when you're giving advice, lifestyle yeah. advice. And last year was a really tough year for me. Now, I know what you're going through because in 2012, I developed a brain health app, mm. knew nothing about app development, the exact same as you. We did the same sort of thing as you. We actually brought people in and we even showed them aesthetics. And, mm. you know, because 2012, that's 10 years ago now. Mm. So even the whole app thing. And we were also aiming at a slightly older audience and what would work what wouldn't work and I know the sleepless nights I actually think I managed at that period in time it was when I was developing hello brain I thought I was really brilliant because I'd figured out how to fit two working days into one so I would work just the normal day and then I would go to bed maybe about 10 or 11 sleep wake up at three work again you know what I mean and get it was the only way I fitted everything in I'd committed to so many things but I'm the same as you last year was a stressful year for me early part of the year was brilliant if I look at the timing even I was on your podcast last Mm. May for the launch of my book. I was in really good shape body-wise, you know, physically, mentally, et cetera. Within months, I gained two stone and was really sort of unwell and got COVID myself. I mean, my son, who's also a GP, Mm. um, well, he actually got a parasite and really life-threatening. He's immune compromised, so he almost died. So that was pretty stressful. Then he got COVID 10 days later. Then I got COVID. Then for the whole year, I had my house on the market, selling my house, you know, all those stressful things at once. And I just like that you feel like a fraud I'm giving talks on how to manage <laughs> stress and I'm struggling yeah yeah but <laughs> I'm struggling I, myself but I, I think that helps to understand how other people 
are coping. Exactly. I think it's that lived experience. I mean, it sounds like you've had a roller coaster of a year. And unless you can actually live it yourself, it's hard to talk to other people about it, which is, you know, even as a GP, I can only empathize so much with someone who is going through, I don't know, a terminal illness or depression or, you know, uh, lack of motivation to improve their weight, you know, or quitting smoking, for example, there's only so much you can, you can empathize with. And I think that lived experience just allows you to connect deeper with the people that you're trying to influence. So yeah, in, in the spirit of honesty, it's like, it is tough to do all these different things. I do have a few things that anchor me though. Um, yeah. I always meditate in the morning. Right. I always do my affirmations in the morning as well, where I, where I remind myself of why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm literally constantly talking to myself and say, Rupi, you're doing a very challenging thing. You will get through it. Okay. If you just persist and you're consistent, you will get through it. And it's just training my brain with those positive signals that will sit in the subconscious as well as conscious mind that will allow me to hopefully get through this. So little things like that, if you can anchor yourself with small, tangible, short snippets of a positive affirmation, I think that's been very good for my mental well-being as well during this time. I find once my sleep is disrupted, like Mm. I'm just screwed up. Mm. Uh, And I'm sure a lot of people listening get that. And a lot of people have had, if the data on prescription of sleeping tablets is anything to go by, there's been a huge increase in insomnia, mainly down to the pandemic. But I know myself, once my sleep is disrupted, I am completely derailed. And I do have sort of post-COVID insomnia with it. I really am experiencing poor sleep, disrupted sleep that I haven't had for a long time Mm. that I would have occasionally as we all do, but it's when it's persistent. And I think what a lot of people aren't aware are certainly are surprised when I talk about it again, when I give my sleep, how you can (laughs) um, promote good sleep as she is struggling to sleep herself. But you do have to remind yourself of those things. But the, the thing when the relationship between sleep and stress is important there. But I think what people aren't aware of is often people, if you have disrupted sleep, you are likely to eat somewhere between three and 600 more calories the next day. And you will crave calories. You will seek calories from sugar and fatty foods. So you just go into this vicious cycle and weight gain, like just sleep loss within a year, you can gain 10 pounds just from the sleep loss. You know, I totally uh, resonate with that because as someone who is very fastidious about their sleep, uh, when I don't have good sleep, I definitely feel it the next day. But there's two things that I do um, that I think would be useful for people to hear about. A is sympathize with myself. So I have quite a structured diary where like literally every 45 minutes is pretty much assigned to a task. Ah, but therein, can I just say that? I yeah. hate to interrupt you, but I, that's a really key point. Yeah. You said every 45 minutes, not every 60 minutes. So yeah. you're allowing a little break in between. Yeah. Yeah. That's critical yeah. for people. <laughs> yeah. that's ab- but you see, that's another thing that will really help. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So everything is quite regimented. But if I've had poor sleep, I look at my, uh, I use an aura ring or you can use free apps and stuff on your phone. If I know that my sleep isn't on point, I will sympathize with myself a lot more. I will quite happily move things around my schedule just because I know I'm not going to be up to my optimum. So I'm not going to try and push myself to do that exercise thing in the morning. I'm not going to push myself to do uh, five, six tasks. I'm going to be, you know, naturally just say, okay, I'm just going to do three today. That's what I'm going to do. And the other thing is exactly what you just said about the craving of food. 
when you know that's your sleep deprivation kicking in that will make you crave i know to be a little bit more um, regimented with my eating habits like i'm feeling hungry right now i'm not gonna just go for something that i know is in the kitchen i'm gonna eat in the morning or the afternoon i'm gonna eat in the evening and those are the other two things i'm gonna do because i know it's my brain tricking me into thinking that it's yeah. trying to seek sugary foods to fuel a poorly functioning brain that's basically what's happening also as well you talk and you have it in your app as well and you've talked about it in a lot of your interviews the importance of gut health and i actually wrote about it in my book as well you know that cravings often come from your gut through the neurons you know yeah. your second brain is your gut mm. and essentially it's your bad microbes saying give me more of that yeah. shit <laughs> i'm on a roll here i can take advantage of the fact that you didn't sleep last night and yeah. i can get you craving more and more and more of these yeah. things yeah. so yeah yeah and i do think I suppose that's my whole principle as well and yours too in a way that by handing people knowledge you give them power mm. and understanding mm. rather than when people are just told do this do that do the other I think yeah. it helps if you kind of understand what's going on exactly um, inside inside yeah. so fantastic that you've brought your app to fruition I know how hard that is <laughs> and what a challenge it really is and I know we did it I, I don't know about you but we certainly did it on very limited budget I got some very. funding from the European Commission and apps are very expensive yeah to they develop. are if you want to do I mean I had to pull mine right back I'm sure yeah. you were the same yeah oh, I want people to be able to put in I'm this I'm that I don't like this food I don't like that food yeah. and get what they want and they kind of go yeah how yeah. much money have you got <laughs> yeah yeah totally it was it was that sort of iterative process over the last two years I mean a I spent a long time and it was quite an expensive process finding the right developers because I'm non-technical myself yes and then once having the developers it was like that it was like okay these are all the things that I really want to launch with but actually we're gonna to have to strip back everything including the android version because of lack of funds because i bootstrapped the whole thing yeah. um and that was has really allowed us to launch with what i feel is um, a simple product but it's still very very useful for a lot of people based on the feedback and so you know the fact that you can filter according to health goals and myself and the research team have looked at all those studies and looked at the dietary patterns as well as the specific ingredients that align with those health goals and then you can also filter according to your dietary preferences as well as allergens and intolerances and they get access to this wonderful rich content library with all those recipes with step-by-step -step images the whole thing just evokes colorful playfulness around healthy eating rather than what most people are used to which is a regimented dietary sort of restriction exactly. punishment yeah um yeah and that did jump out of me i mean the food just looks delicious and actually you say simple there now i do think from a user perspective simple is best because yeah. i know say i try to use for example first thing you do if you have migraine you go to a neurologist and they say keep a diary now i had so many headaches of different kinds yeah. all day every day that to try and keep a diary i could do nothing else because I could mm. wake with one kind of headache at 11 o'clock I could get a massive ice pick one here then mm. I might be okay for an hour and then I kind of get a different one so the migraine app actually just irritated me you know and then actually which was really interesting my neurologist flipped it he just said just write when you don't have migraines you know and that was just so much easier yeah. you know and you discover well I never have migraine free days you know I might have a free hour or whatever so for me say with migraine the point was to get it down to where it was bearable and I can just continue doing because the brain is wonderful 
wonderful. And people with chronic illnesses do adapt to what they have. Mm-hmm. And that's probably part of the problem in a way as well is you adapt to having these things. So you don't realize that actually making lifestyle changes and changing your diet, for example, could actually really improve yeah. that yeah. and I mean I know myself as well like why I say I have headaches every day I do know if I have proper sleep I do know if I exercise I do know if I eat properly mm. they're not so bad and that's kind of a message it's amazing isn't it like how multifactorial different lifestyle changes and nutrition can be when it comes to chronic disease in particular I mean like you know just making small tweaks and changes to some of my patients over the last you know, 10 years I've been working, have been pretty groundbreaking. And, you know, it sounds very simple on the surface, but when you understand the potential mechanisms, like, you know, we were just talking about microbes and their role in appetite, for example, and and inflammation and, and looking after the integrity of the gut barrier, which can have a profound impact on a number of different things. You know, those little tweaks and changes can be absolutely groundbreaking. And, you know, sometimes I, I sound like it's quite easy to do these things. And you, we have to be respectful of everyone's different abilities and conveniences in their environment and stuff. But if we can deliver the information and give them tangible Uh, realistic goals it it is possible to have vast improvements in a number of symptoms and improved performance as well it's not just about the absence of symptoms it's also about improving performance yeah that's something i want to jump in on on you because i want to scream about this you know and you actually work in the nhs but i and i mean i've been talking about this for years and years and years particularly in the context say of dementia which was where i originally started working is how little money is spent on prevention and mm. how all our funds it's just a stupid i'm sorry it's just plain stupid why invest all that money in like i think in ireland it's something like 60 percent of hospital beds this is pre-covid folks because everything changed with covid in that regard but pre-covid 60 percent of hospital beds are taken up by chronic illnesses which for the most part are are lifestyle induced in that they're modifiable they could be prevented etc now folks like a lot of people can get angry and I've had people come up to me sometimes after talks and say, oh, you're blaming the person for the disease. No, it's nothing to do with blame. Mm. This is to do with prevention, yeah. with actually letting people know that actually what we do during our life influences how your body, your brain, your gut, how everything works. And actually that's empowering. So whilst on the one hand, we need to treat the people who are currently affected by chronic illnesses. I'm in there, you know, with chronic migraine. Mm. And also like my mother died of and with dementia. Now, she didn't know all the stuff Mm. that could have helped prevent dementia. So, you know, it's not her fault. We still need to treat her. But it seems to me really stupid, given all that we know about prevention, particularly through lifestyle, that we're putting all the money on treating a cohort while we're actually letting another cohort come yeah. through. Yeah. Do you know, you got to start putting more and more money into prevention and into education because so much of it starts in childhood. And yeah. I look, the obesity in childhood is, it's horrifying. Yeah, I, I have thoughts on this. So um, I, I totally agree in terms of preventative medicine, we don't spend anywhere near as much money as we should do. So what we have is essentially a reactive model of yep. healthcare rather than a proactive model. There are some changes being made to that, but I think, you know, whenever you're fighting fires, your resources are always going to go to the front line without really that lateral thinking about, okay, how do we prevent the next generation of suffering with the same issues? And a lot of that comes down to the environment in which we live in as well. So 
the idea of lifestyle medicine um, is sometimes like you uh, said there with, with people coming up to you and accusing you of assigning blame to the patient. The whole lifestyle medicine element sounds like it's always going to be a patient choice issue, whereas in reality, it's part patient choice, but a lot of it, uh, of your ability to prevent disease is down to your environment, your educational level, yes. your cooking ability, finances, uh, yep. a whole bunch of other external drivers to lifestyle. And I think that's where we as a community need to be a lot more vocal about it. And so you know, talking about these uh, issues and, and also giving people as much information as possible, tangible changes that they can make is the way we're going to get up this. And that's one of the reasons why I do the podcast and the socials and the books and stuff. But it's also one of the reasons why I did the app, because I feel that that's a way to scale up this information and make it achievable to eat well every day. Yes, I think you're so on the money there. And there's so many important things that you said in there, because socioeconomic status is hugely predictive of mm. so many illnesses and conditions. And a lot of that is to do with education access. It's also generational, unfortunately, you know, because you talk a lot about your mom and your mom's influence um, yeah. and, you know, cooking and all that. So that's why I think there has to be a role for other people, because and I've said this as well, and I feel strongly about this, that your education system is different to ours but I don't think there's enough life education in our educational systems mm. kids should be taught how to cook kids yeah. should be taught about nutrition they should be taught about managing finances yeah. money you know about taking loans about how if you borrow that's actually you're going to pay three times for the thing better to save all those things because they're generational and that's what keeps people locked in you know, environments that where they increase the risk of diseases and not getting through educational systems and all sorts of things. So I think there has to be a point where governments, people, I'm all for saying to people, we must take more responsibility for our health, because certainly in our country, I go somewhere along the line, the vast majority of the population abdicated responsibility for their health to the NHS or the HSE. No, you need to fix me. What can you give me? Whereas actually, ultimately, fundamentally, primarily responsibility for your health rests with you. Now, that's fine to say if I'm in a position to have that knowledge and experience that, that it's not a level playing field. And mm. that is part of the problem is that people with higher levels of education and better playing jobs have access to that information. And so they can actually look after their health better. So we need to level the playing field. And yeah. the only way to do that is by intervening and giving that education and giving that kind of empowerment. But I also think there's ways that governments can intervene. I think that it is wrong. I look at supermarket trolleys a lot if I you know if I am shopping yeah. my husband does most of the shopping he's listening and he'll say when are you in the supermarket but when I am I do look at the supermarket trolleys and you will see people who have clear health issues and their trolleys are piled high with rubbish just rubbish and that's because that rubbish is cheap mm. um, and the fact of the matter actually is really vegetables and those kind of things are probably the cheapest food you can buy like it mm. is far cheaper to buy the ingredients for a vegetable curry or something like that than it is to buy the sealed up pre-made yeah. pack that's full of preservatives etc right i have so many things i want to talk to you. <laughs> i want to go back to this podcast is about surviving and thriving in life sure. ultimately and you are a classic case of 
thriving, really. And yeah. I love your honesty that, you know, I often think of myself sometimes. And I think these kind of video links where you're only seen from the top, you yeah. know, yes, because people have said to me, oh, I saw you on the telly and you look fantastic. And I'm going to feel really shite. And actually, you can't see the weight gain from here down. And I'm sitting back far to kind of disguise that. But I always have this sense of, you know, madly paddling underneath what yeah. people can see on yeah, the surface yeah. and plus on the surface when you're doing something like this for any people who are in the public eye you get a surge of adrenaline and that actually helps you it's like actors on a stage they could have a horrific chest infection and they can do an entire hour and a half performance and not cough once yeah and that's because you know it's suppressed and, and you kind of get through that whatever that threat yeah. or challenge is yeah, uh, yeah. but you'll really pay for it afterwards yeah. so I also want to talk about the surviving bit because I sure. think everybody, even the most successful people on the planet have had some sort of challenge and they have, and often it's because they've had that challenge that then they thrive. And in yeah. a way, that's exactly what's happened with you. So tell us a little bit about your 24. Yeah. You're just qualified as a doctor. You have all the stresses that go with that. And I know that having lived with a son, you know, doing those nights, that's just not really good for your health. Yeah. And you think maybe you're starting to get some panic attacks. So mm. talk us a little bit through about what you were feeling. Yeah. So, so back in 2009, when I just qualified, I was working at Basildon hospital. So I was three months into the job and um, no pre-existing issues. I didn't have any weight problems. I didn't have any family history or anything. And one day I was at the nurse's station and I started getting palpitations and it came out of nowhere. I was sat down at the time, you know, it was, it was a long stretch of long shifts that I was on. I was probably on my ninth or 10th day, something like that. And I let it go on for about five minutes until I spoke to my registrar and I said, look, would you mind feeling my pulse? I feel like I'm going a bit fast. And I was embarrassed at that point because I didn't know whether it was a panic attack or whether it was just like me not having enough water or whatever. Anyway, she felt my pulse and then straight away she got an ECG. And then within half an hour, stripped of my clothes, put into a hospital gown, hooked up to a cardiac monitor. And what it showed was a barn door atrial fibrillation, which is a heart rhythm where your heart beats exceptionally irregularly. And in my case, very, very fast. So I was going above 200 beats per minute. And normal would be? Oh, uh, normal would be anything below 100, uh, really. Yeah. So we, we, we classify normal as 60 to 100, even though I personally don't think uh, that above 80 is particularly healthy if you're at rest, um, but there's a whole nother conversation. Yeah. So, so I was admitted and uh, I luckily didn't have low blood pressure. I didn't have to have a cardioversion or anything like that. I was just monitored overnight and I was given some medications that reverted my rhythm. And I thought that was just going to be a one-off event. But what happened is I would go on to have these events two to three times a week, no triggers, no issues in my bloods. I had all the different studies, uh, electrophysiology studies. I saw a number of different cardiologists. No one could figure out what the triggers were. And I was essentially told that I need to have an ablation, which is where you put a guide wire into the, an area around the heart and you burn an area where there are misfiring cells that are causing this erroneous rhythm. I think ablation is a word that doesn't really get through to what's involved yeah you know, it is burning away yeah. like yeah. there will be a smell of burning yeah. in the room <laughs> yes i mean luckily i didn't have to go through with that because my mum uh really said to me she's not a medic she's just got her matriarchal indian hat on 
And everyone from an Indian family has sort of a, an Ayurvedic streak to everything, whether yeah. it's, you know, turmeric here, garam masala there, certain types of oils, head massages, all that kind of stuff. And she was oh, like, give you know, me head massages. No. <laughs> just, uh, oh, if ever I became a millionaire, that is what I would invest in is totally yeah, head, head massages or a massage, bed. even, you know, but the head massages are the very best. Sometimes I think it's the only reason I go to get my hair done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they give a little one at the sink and I kind of want to go would it be creepy to say can you do another bit another minute. <laughs> I know they're great um so yeah she was like you know you really need to look at your diet and lifestyle before you entertain a more aggressive Invasive. procedure yeah and so you know really to appease her because if I think about my mindset as a 24 year old who you know straight out of medical school being told by a number of different senior doctors this is what you need to have who am i to go against that and i wasn't going against that at all but i'm glad that i listened to my mom because after about 12 to 18 months of changes my af episodes reverted and if i look back to my lifestyle when i started having the issues i was eating cereals and juice in the morning i was having sandwiches in the afternoon whatever the hospital canteen was was serving up i was having a quick pasta in the evening i was having quote unquote a normal diet for a junior doctor it's very very normal if you think about what people are eating today i think it's a very normal diet for a lot of people oh yeah 100%. you know and it's a kind of in a way a convenience diet oh and yeah people you know you do think you're cooking for yourself if you make that sandwich if you make that pasta you know even Self-care. if it's got lovely healthy sauces on <laughs> yeah. it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. and when you're a doctor like that it's tough not to like you're on the go it's kind of part of the job isn't yeah. it oh i have to just grab a quick sandwich totally. and a lot of us kind of feel like that i don't have the time it's, it's part of the bravado it's like oh yeah. i didn't have time to eat i'm so good i'm, I'm yeah. seeing all these yeah. patients you know there's a sort of an accolade behind the busyness of it all. except that your patients are going to suffer as a consequence because yeah. you won't be able I mean, to think properly yeah and myself and so you know I wasn't sleeping properly. I was doing night shifts. I was stressed out my mind. I was working in a new job, you know, all these different things compounded. And for me, my threshold of disease was clearly a lot lower than my colleagues who, you know, didn't have any issues. And actually I look back on it and I'm kind of grateful because it was like the canary in the coal mine sort of thing, Mm -hmm. because a lot of people go through life for decades before it culminates in something really serious like a heart attack or a stroke or I mean it's something I feel very strongly about again also in the medical profession you know even my own experience when you go to the doctor the primary aim of the doctor when you go with multiple even singular symptoms due to your training your primary concern is to rule out the most serious one. yeah and that makes sense, I suppose, and makes sense from so many levels. But death is not the only outcome. We are going to be suffering for a very long period because death was considered the primary concern yeah. in COVID. Yeah. And of course, we had to consider death, but not in isolation, yeah. you know, because so many people with long COVID, so many people with brain fog, so many people with ongoing new complications and I think we're going to see a lot more autoimmune diseases and you know a lot of things happening to people as a consequence of COVID and we might say we know very little about COVID but we know a lot about serious viral illnesses and the same principles are going to apply but there's too much emphasis on mortality and AFib 
I should say to people, I'm not a medical doctor, but I know of AFib in the context of risk for dementia. And AFib can affect various aspects of your well-being, including your brain health Mm. and increases your risk for developing stroke, which Mm. I presume you're probably alluding to somebody might just suddenly get a stroke. But also, and stroke increases your risk of dementia, but AFib also increases your risk of developing dementia even if you've never had a stroke, as far as I understand it, you can have like little mini, it's like uh, death by a thousand cuts often with these things is that it's all these tiny little sort of like every time you have a flu, your brain takes a hit, Mm. (laughs) you know, and Mm. and those things can pile up and ultimately affect your ability. So AFib is very serious. Yeah. The the good way to think about AFib from the perspective of your listeners is that instead of your heart beating nice and synchronously where you have the blood flow going from different chambers of the heart in a nice orderly fashion, you have turbulent blood. And if your blood is turbulent because it's not in a nice sort of orderly fashion, it becomes sticky because all those factors smash in together. And so what can happen is you get these micro thrombi that can, like you said, go to your brain. They can also go to your intestines. They can go to anywhere and lodge themselves. And that can cause ischemia or lack of blood flow. And that's what can cause a a multitude of issues that I was obviously very worried about. Yeah. And being a medical doctor, you are aware Mm. of those things, but also that sticky blood that you talk about, that's been a feature of many people infected with COVID, the blood seemed to just have got very sticky. Mm. And that's why a lot of people, you know, had stroke or or kind of brain issues. But of course, you see, as I say, your heart is a pump that services your brain. And if that pump's not working properly, you know, your brain is going to be affected. So you changed your diet. And I, you know, I mean, we hear lots of these stories. At the moment, what I'm kind of working on in terms of a next book is, is, you know, talking about manifesting your desires, but really mm-hmm. from a scientific perspective, what it is inside your brain that does that. And a lot of these books that I'm reading around that, you know, they say, oh, if you do this, this happens. And you've just got to believe it. And you've just got to have faith and trust in it. And um, what I like about your story is the scientist in you, the medic in you. I mean, I think you talk about why you think the vegetables. I think it was that you thought, well, maybe you had a nutritional deficiency that you didn't know about Uh, or maybe you didn't have enough roughage yeah yeah the the reason why i talk about that is because i'm often asked and i will often ask myself okay the question is okay you made all these changes how like what was the mechanism behind why that improves something that we haven't really uh, made the connection with atrial fibrillation and so postulating what those might be Like you said, it could be I was harboring a deficiency in one of the micronutrients that I didn't have enough. And that wasn't picked up by the standard panel of bloods that we have in the NHS, like magnesium or vitamin D or or zinc, exactly. All those different things. We don't tend to look for them. And also the ranges in which we look uh, for them as well are pretty extreme. So to be classified as deficient for vitamin D, for example, you have to be sub 20 which I think is is quite low. And actually, you should be looking at optimal levels, not just what is just classified as a deficiency. And again, that's that thing in medicine is they're ruling out disease instead of trying to optimize health. Exactly. Now, say vitamin D, yeah. for an example, would be a difference. So I get prescribed vitamin D, you know, because my levels are low. And as mm. my GP puts it, I think you'll benefit from vitamin D, Sabina. Yeah. You know, whereas I've always been anemic and then it's, no, you actually need iron because, mm. you know, you have anemia, but you can get that from your food too Mm. you know it doesn't have to be through a supplement but i do think part of that is 
I remember I used to tutor, you may have had one in the NHS, but I used to tutor medical students. So I tutored them on behavioral science and they just thought it was woo woo, you know, you know, <laughs> really? they, you know, anyway, and it's not woo woo, <laughs> you know, it's, it's serious science, but they were interested in looking at the molecular level yeah. of everything and the biochemistry and everything. And I remember even asking questions, you know, what aspects of behavior do you think would influence health? And these really intelligent kids sitting there going, you know, and I, I go, how about exercise? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. How about eating? <laughs> how about sleep? Oh, oh, yeah. OK, sorry. But what about the molecules? You yeah. know, like, what about? Yeah. So it's important to do both. But it's funny. And a lot of doctors don't. They get so focused. And I do think that a lot is to do with the training. Yeah. So, again, I was delighted to read that you're working on, among many things, <laughs> on correct me if I'm wrong, like a, a nutritional module for young doctors. Totally. Yeah. So it's uh, something called coloring medicine, which is a nonprofit inspired really by the Americans who have been doing coloring medicine in medical schools for the last 15 years or so. And basically what we do is myself and a, a number of other people in the team, we teach medical students how to cook. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. As well as giving them the tools about how to enact behavior change in a clinical setting. And we do that with the help of a registered dietitian that leads the class, a professional chef, where we actually get them teaching practical yeah. skills. And then we have a family meal afterwards, which is where we get to discuss, okay, what are the nuances of nutrition? What are the questions they have? People have loads of questions about nutrition, even, you know, at a young age, we all do. We're all fascinated with food. And we also get to talk about the skepticism around nutrition, you know, how effective can it be? And what are the cumulative effects with nutrition and pharmaceuticals and other lifestyle changes? Also, the practicality of instituting significant changes in a clinical environment when you've got such little time with your patients, you know, an averaging eight minutes patient in, yeah. in general practice. So all this stuff really comes out and it's been wonderful to see UCL are the only medical school in Europe that have coloring medicine as part of their compulsory uh, education, right. now, which is, a, you know, an amazing step forward. We've been working with them for two years, even throughout the pandemic, we switched everything from in-person teaching at Westminster Kingsway to remote, but we, we're going yeah. back to in-person teaching now, which I think is super, super, because, you know, it's hard to do remote knife skills, for example, yeah, yeah. In, uh, <laughs> on Zoom. But there are a number of other medical schools like Bristol uh, that do specialty choice modules now with us with culinary medicine. And hopefully a lot other, a lot more medical schools are going to buy into this idea that they should be training their students in culinary medicine because it's it's you know foundational practice. Yeah, there's a lot of training. I do think the whole model 
needs a bit of a revamp. You were talking about lifestyle medicine. I'm also a huge fan of social prescribing. Mm. And I think that's where some of the answer lies in that. Okay, yes, you know, eight minutes per patient. It's a very short period of time. A lot of, for example, older patients are often going in for sheer company. Mm. You know, a lot of visit around um, depression. There's some fabulous work done in Scotland. I remember speaking at an event and actually in Perth in Scotland for the equivalent of our HICWA, which is the health authority, you know, monitoring. But actually, you know, where they literally had a team of people. So Mm. basically, you know, they would come in and say, actually, do you know what, you know, widowed men, that's something I want to bring up on nutrition as well. Widowed men coming in, you know, and, and generally speaking, and a lot of widowed people being prescribed antidepressants to, yeah. I mean, I remember doing my research, my PhD, you know, what medications are you taking and medications? And so many of them would say no. But we would also say to them, when we do the face-to-face, will you bring in any meds? You know, yeah. and then you look and you kind of go, you're this medication which would be an antidepressant and you can be on that oh yeah and my doctor put me on that when my husband died and he said sure there's no point and you know I may as well kind of stay on it and you're going it's a fucking antidepressant yeah, excuse my French yeah. but that is acting on your central nervous system mm. that could be affecting your cognitive ability I actually can't use them in the study anyway mm. um, and you'd kind of go well hold on a second she was on that for grief which is questionable in the first place yeah you know helping people through grief it's a process you need to feel that pain yeah you know and kind of get through it some instances um it's required but i sort of said to her when did your husband die like 10 years ago you you know and you kind of go this is absolute madness but this fabulous doctor that i heard speak so what they would do is prescribe the local men's shed or you know suggest you know what sport did you ever play oh there's a tennis club whatever and then he had a team of people who didn't have to be qualified. And I say a team, maybe there was one or two, but they were to help the person then afterwards. So the person didn't have to go off and find the men's shed. They would then say, this is the men's shed. I'm going to introduce you to so-and-so, you know, and actually take what is often the hardest step, the first one, and kind of get them in there. And there's so many other ways that having people like that in uh, now we're moving more certainly here anyway to that medical model where you have your therapist and your psychologist yeah, and yeah. your physiotherapist all in the same place but we could have people that don't cost as much that could help immensely with that kind of thing and there could be a cooking one <laughs> because yeah. I, I did research a number of years ago and actually we were shortlisted for uh, an award for it in with the big microsofts and all the rest and basically we did a study called relate and I was interested in developing it as a model that could become a social model, a sort of a pay it forward social model, Mm. but also a model that could be introduced by governments supported. So essentially what we did was we matched volunteers. So we advertised in the newspaper for people who self-identified as feeling lonely or socially isolated. Uh And then we matched them with people who were interested in volunteering in the community. Now it was a pairing. It was not like we had to train the volunteers. You are not here to help this individual. This is a match. The idea being that in a few years time, perhaps if you need it, you've done your bit, someone does it for you. So essentially we matched them together. We developed a little cookbook the basics exactly that how to cut up mm. you know vegetable how to boil an egg you know um, and essentially what they did was together they chose meal recipes out of the book they selected the food they met for once a week for 90 minutes they prepared the meal together they ate it together and supposedly cleared up together we had some volunteers come back he never washes up and then <laughs> others who became friends for life after it right and yeah. um, but the interesting thing we found was Now, we had advertised in the Times 
Okay, so it was not lower socioeconomic status. Uh-huh. It was this was essentially a trial. Ultimately, we were hoping maybe to get funding to do a clinical trial. But so that was the socioeconomic status. Well-educated people. We found that almost twenty-seven percent of mainly most of our participants were men. Actually, twenty-seven mm. percent of them were malnourished, borderline oh, malnourished. Wow. Wow. Now, that didn't mean they were underweight, but yeah. they were doing things like eating sandwiches or eating meals for one or not yeah. bothering to eat. So I will always say that food is not just about sustenance. Mm. It is about social contact and interaction. And what research shows, what the literature shows and what was reflected in our own research was that when you share a meal with somebody else, when you enjoy that, you actually take more nutrients in. Yeah. You'll eat more food. You'll eat nicer food. You care more more about the food and I think that's something really important that I do it myself anybody even if you are in a relationship say oh well it's just me oh I'll just have toast and this or you know so you have to value yourself if you are on your own but also I think there is huge value I mean what sparked our study in a sense was we started to hear that instead of delivering I was it was in the UK actually and instead of you know meals on wheels Mm. they had made a decision to be more efficient instead of delivering meals on wheels every day they decided they were delivering seven meals and that would save a whole load of money your weekly meals in one stop and I was going but you're missing the point that contact of someone just calling the door to yeah. give you a meal could be the only contact for absolutely. that individual. Absolutely. And that just doesn't apply to older people. Uh, yeah, so food totally. is how we evolved into who we are learning yeah. how to cook, you know, fire I, helped our cerebral cortex expand yeah, and yeah. we learned around food mm. and that scares me in a way as well. I'm totally pro technology totally for it but in balance with a life where we should at least as families be eating meals around a table because you can learn we mustn't move too far away from that campfire one of the reasons why i think the mediterranean diet is so effective because the mediterranean diet isn't just about the collection of different ingredients which just for the listeners is made up of largely legumes uh, mostly plants colorful local seasonal as well as whole grains and minimal uh, processed meats, if no processed items at all, and minimal animal products. It's actually... And oil from olive oil. And oil from extra virgin olive oil, You know, your fats from olive oil. Good fats, yeah. Whole fats, so with all those anti-inflammatory benefits and omega-3 from oily fish. But uh, it's also about the way in which the Mediterraneans tend to eat as well, which is around the table without distraction. And I think perhaps one of the reasons why, you know, we have a French paradox where they smoke more than us, they drink more than us, yet they have less disease than us. And if you go there, they have a good hour for lunch. You know, they they are not rushed when they're eating. And I think that has something to do with it. Maybe not everything, but certainly something. Yeah, I know there's certainly from our perspective, because obviously from a brain health perspective and, you know, in terms of reducing risk for development of dementia, adopting a Mediterranean diet has Mm. best evidence. And certainly in my first instance, I was going, well, there's the social engagement, there's the challenging level, and that is definitely there. Although there have been studies that sort of separate out those things. But I definitely agree with you. There is that added bonus and Mm. we sort of need... I mean, I remember actually on my honeymoon, it was my first time really experiencing people eating. I mean, I'd been on girls' holidays, but a honeymoon was different, you know, and we'd gone somewhere nice, went out for meals and stuff like that. 
But I remember people eating in the restaurant. There was must have been eight courses in a sense. These weren't big courses. Like I remember one of the courses was just plates of figs because it was right. my first time ever seeing a fig. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, you know, yeah. growing up in Ireland when I did, like it was meat and two veg. Like you really, there was a very limited diet. Like vegetables were carrots and potatoes. And obviously yeah. potatoes are just sugar. They're starch. <laughs> they're a carbohydrate. They're not a vegetable, you know. And I think there's a lot of Irish people today who still go, what do you mean? It's not a vegetable. <laughs> it's not really, you know, it's not a beneficial vegetable. But I remember seeing them and they talked for hours and even on the beach. And I love that on the beach, you see multi-generational food sharing yeah. and conversation and, yeah. and then napping in an afternoon, which is another thing yeah. that is sort of, you a know, there's health benefits. That, it's, think, a, it's, a, yeah. it's a cultural thing. And there is interesting studies from Greece where because of the tourism industry, a group of wherever, and I forgive me because I can't remember the exact place, etc. You know yourself, you've thousands of studies. But basically what they found was the nap essentially sort of became eradicated because they needed to open during siesta ah, time if right. they were going to earn a living, yeah. you know, selling food. Okay. Ultimately what happened, long story short, was there was an increase in heart disease, heart attacks, ah, uh, heart conditions in the men. I must look up the study, but absolutely, because certainly with sleep, we have a natural dip in alertness mid-afternoon. We all try and overcome it. A great way to overcome it, folks, if you're listening, is actually to go for a run or take yeah. aerobic exercise at lunchtime. It actually will sharpen your alertness and your ability to learn and focus and pay attention and actually remember better. But there's nothing to say that there are some cultures who still do it. And I often say to people, if you're missing sleep, the night before you can use napping prophylactically or to make up a sleep loss yeah. but you've got to make sure it's only either for about 10 minutes or 90 minutes otherwise if it's 10 minutes you get a, a nice little benefit if you go 40 minutes or whatever you wake up mid-cycle and you wake up sleep drunk uh, feeling yeah, far yeah, worse I, I wanted to ask you something because you're not a vegetarian or whatever and you will eat meat occasionally most mm. of your recipes though don't have meat mm. you do have some I, I saw that on your app so you mm. have Vegan, vegetarian, and yeah, pescatarian yeah. is what you have. So there's two things I want to ask you about there. One of them being, what are your feelings around veganism from a health perspective? I yeah. certainly have some concerns about it. I have some concerns about it from a brain health perspective. And secondly, from, and the same applies, I suppose, to vegetarianism in that regard. They are considered healthful but they are only healthful if you ensure that you are getting all of the nutrients. And I know so many vegetarians who have crap diets, mm, like they just yeah. eat loads of bread and pasta yeah, and yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. So what's your feelings? I mean, I know there's certainly been some research around dangers of veganism for young children and development. Yeah. Yeah, with regards to diet, so you're right, a mixture of different foods. I do eat animal products. I treat them as luxury items. And the reason why I include them in my diet is because they are rich sources of nutrients that are very hard to get from a, or impossible to get from a purely plant-based diet and a vegetarian diet as well. And those are the common ones, omega-3, B vitamins, particularly B12, as well as a complex of B vitamins. Iron, you can get from plants, from legumes, nuts, and, and dark uh, green vegetables. Dark green vegetables. Um, but people's absorption can change from person to person based on their pre existing issues. 
and vitamin b12 absorption changes yeah. dramatically with age yeah definitely and it's also signifying our loss of microbial diversity as well because the b12 is actually produced from certain microbes and we've we've lost that in the soil and so I hear you about some concerns, particularly when it comes to children and developmental stages with regard to lack of omega-3 and uh, B vitamins. And yeah, I mean, you can get zinc and stuff from other sources, but those are the, the two that come to mind. And I know like we don't necessarily recommend that for pediatric nutrition, but comparing what the general state of affairs is with diet as it pertains to people who don't follow a particular, uh, you know, low plant-based regime, vegan diets can be great for those people, as long as they're supplemented. And I think most people know what the supplementation should be these days. And if they don't, you know, I highly recommend you look it up as well, because you don't want to be at loss. Um, it's a strange one with diet, isn't it? Because it's mixed in with like a moral imperative to do something. Yes. Um, yep. You know, and I, I do respect that from adults who choose that way of life. And it's something that I think ever since I got a puppy, I've been reestablishing my relationship with animals in general, you know, because it's hard because you got a puppy. What did you get? Yeah, I got it. Well, I she's think... not even a puppy now. She's like almost two years old, but she still ah, looks still like a puppy. puppy. That's yeah, still a puppy. What kind <laughs> of dog is she? She's is a she? cavapoo. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. And she's okay. about yay big. We call she them mongrels. Times, but... <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it just meant any dogs that wasn't a thoroughbred where they yeah, just mixed breeds. Yeah, yeah. So when we were kids, that's exactly what it was. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. they're just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she's great. And like, I've never had a pet before and like, you know, take her out and like care for her and she looks like a little lamb and like, you know, so it's that like difficult relationship because the only reason why we don't eat dogs is because of a, well, they're not bred for that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Other countries do. Well, there, yeah. And there are pets and we do have, yeah. there's a very particular relation. I have three dogs. I used to have mm. five dogs. I mm. actually highly recommend anybody who is feeling isolated or lonely. You saw that in lockdown. Oh, I feel great. really bad yeah. though, but the amount of them who are giving their dogs back, oh, that's horrible. No, that's um, terrible. But yeah. Also, the companionship. I work from home most of the time. I write, and I mean, they genuinely give you unconditional love. Like yeah. they genuinely, no matter what, they are just wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I was vegetarian. I turned vegetarian when I was teen, and mm. was vegetarian for several years. Now, when I was a teen, it's very long time ago, and as I said, there really wasn't even options of food. Like I got married around when, oh, what was I, twenty four, whatever, and I like that. That was the first time I saw a fig. And yeah. actually, even in Dublin, we really didn't even have restaurants. They only sort of started to come in. It sounds like I was born in the dark age but people forget <laughs> how much things have changed yeah. in, in a period of time yeah. um but anyway i was not a healthy vegetarian you know and then oh, okay. sort of ended yeah. up again like that uh, a few years ago i stopped eating meat particularly again for me i became vegetarian again because of animal mm. you know just loving animals etc yeah. then i went back and you can manage you can you can put a chinese wall in your head and kind of differentiate out i met um I was on holiday one time in the States and we were staying with some people and they would actually go out fishing and, and I was kind of, oh, the <laughs> fish, you know, but I would eat fish, yeah, you know, and he had a rule, never eat anything you wouldn't be prepared to kill yourself. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's kind of a good rule and I would not be prepared to kill any animal. Yeah. Um, most particularly, most recently, it's the pigs because I just saw this video about a pig wherever he was listening you know there was loud noises or he was rescued for somewhere you know and he would cry every time there was a loud noise oh, or a bang no. and then yeah. you know you kind of go oh my god 
Yeah. So, yeah, you'll kind of have me, you know, again. And then there's the argument also that we are animals ourselves and, you know, we evolved and people say, well, we have choice now. We do have choice, but it comes with an artificial, as you just said, you have to take supplements. So that isn't. And also then I wonder as well what's gone into the trials that have developed those supplements i'm sure they've been based on animal research at some point along the way you know so like it's very difficult yeah i mean to to be a pure like plant-based or you know pure vegan is probably the most appropriate word it's very hard to avoid anything that has brought some harm to some living thing yeah yeah and your medication often oh yeah yeah medication has gelatin or something in it you know that well even the testing process has gone through animal research in a lot of cases so you know for that aside it's hard i mean my perspective on this the optimal diet includes animal products i think it's quite hard to argue against that actually but with how diverse diet is in terms of its influence on the environment, the moral arguments, our psychology around eating, the cultural elements, all that different stuff. You know, I can understand why people would want to go plant-based. It's not a bad diet, but it certainly needs to be supplemented. And everyone from the plant-based space, whether they be nutritionists or doctors would agree that it definitely needs to be supplemented to be optimal. And so we run into that sort of course of, is this a privileged diet? And is this actually achievable for the majority of people? And I would say exactly right now, it probably isn't. And certainly not with our education level in schools around. And and that's where I hear danger levels. You know, people seeing things like being vegan as a, almost a cool thing to be it as well cool yeah, you know it's a cool yeah. thing to be and, and you know we have vegan january you know what i mean and it, you know it's kind of taking that momentum and that's good provided it comes with the knowledge that you must there are various micro and macronutrients mm. that you must get elsewhere that you can't get from that yeah. diet i want yeah. to ask you something you've been really generous with your time you know having tried some of your recipes myself and some of the things that you do you know i actually have a friend and she has always just just been so careful with the food that she eats in that regard and she came to mind my dogs you know one day last week and I know actually she came to visit me but she sort of came armed with her own food do, do you know that yeah. right? and it was lovely because then I got to eat her beautiful food and she had roasted squash and oh, wow. but she would always have her sprouts you know she would always leave her sprouts and I think I remember reading you do that or in one yeah. of your cookbooks which I do have here where have I left it probably outside my barricade where I can't get it <laughs> But she is maybe a year or two younger than me. And I would say that she probably looks as she did when I met her first in her 30s. Oh, wow. You know, and her hair and, you know, her skin. Mm. And I mean, she's a stunning woman anyway. But I do think, you know, her lifestyle and those choices. And she never drank much alcohol. In fact, I don't think she really drinks alcohol. She might have a glass of wine or two. And she would do yoga and meditation. And it really does. Unfortunately, you know, I did the wild child thing. Like I started smoking at 12 or 13, and, <laughs> you know, tried the few drugs. and things. Thankfully, I gave up cigarettes by, you see, this is what amazed me as well. And I hope you don't mind saying you're about 35, 34, 35, I'm 36, 37 this year. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. But that's still really young for everything that you have achieved. Oh, I remember thanks. someone telling me also that if you give up smoking by the time you're 35, you can kind of negate yeah. <laughs> what you've done. So actually that's when I did it, but I still have the lines. Okay. It's, such a bad thing to ever ever take up 
but for me it was kind of the boldness of it that's funny I had very strict and you know so many factors influence and influence our choices in food or any behavior we choose to do I know I was always a very good child the perfectionist child did really well at school but I also had very restrictive religious parenting Uh, that I wasn't allowed to do and it was very much be seen and not heard it was uh, very much that so like my father would have been in his 40s when I was born so even though my generation should have been more modern my parents weren't sort of thing um and yeah I think I smoked to be bold do do you know what I mean to to kind of get that release which is really stupid if you're going to rebel folks do something that isn't going to damage you (laughs) (laughs) yeah if you're going to rebel do, do something like that now I wanted to ask you because I really do always intend to eat my favorite restaurant that I go to when I'm staying in London is actually a vegan restaurant I just love trying and tasting oh love it um it's not a sit-down restaurant it's one of those where you go and you can fill your plate and I just love it it because I can try all the different foods and if I could afford someone that would be the second thing our first thing possibly before the head massage would be someone (laughs) to cook beautiful uh, healthy well-prepared foods for me yeah. I go through phases sometimes I'm really really good sometimes I'm terrible my son now is a, a doctor and he the same as you his health was suffering and the food and the diet now himself and his girlfriend on a Sunday they batch cook their meals mm. for the week he actually came to stay with me last week and he brought his meals with him they oh, were wow. prepared no, I gave him pizza when he came, and he uh, came <laughs> but then he gave me one of his dinners the next day. It was really nice. nice. It was lovely. But what I want to ask you very long winded in a way is because I've moved to the country now, I don't have immediate access to a supermarket where I can get my fresh veg. Mm. Ideally now I, I'm now on eight acres beside a lake. It's incredible. I moved here for my health and well-being and all the yeah. rest, really. And ultimately, I would like to, in my ideal me world, I would like to actually have my own vegetable garden where Amazing. there's only myself and my husband. So if I buy a bag of rocket lettuce, it goes off before I can eat yeah. it all. So ideally, I want to be able to have lettuce that I can just pick a few leaves. My father used to have a glass house and we'd go yeah. out and pick the tomatoes warm, that smell. Oh, you don't get that from the supermarket. The smell of tomatoes that you've just picked off a leaf and then you have for your dinner. And my dad would grow flowers that we could eat. And I would ideally do that, but that's not happening yet. I'm still coping with moving house and all that. Are frozen vegetables as good? Are the nutrients locked in in frozen veg? Yeah, so frozen veg is actually surprisingly a good source of nutrition because of that very reason in that, they're frozen at source, so they haven't had that much of a chance to degrade. And actually, when you transport them, they're less likely to become uh, nutrient depleted compared to fresh. So sometimes you can do some comparisons on peas and sweet corn, and actually you'll find that the frozen is actually a lot better using certain okay. parameters. So I use frozen veg all the time as a like something to bulk up a stir fry or to add to a casserole i use it for soups when Love i'm it. good because it takes five minutes to make a, a soup totally. that is full of veg i have a soup maker but i actually don't even have to use that yeah the, the basic thing is if you have onions just slice up an onion in a pan if you yeah. want to throw any seasoning in it go for it yeah stock cube 
You can yeah. use your veggie stock cube. I'm sure it's better to make your own stock. Don't have time for that. No, I don't. Throw oh, that yeah. in. I throw frozen peas in, end me beans or whatever. Yeah. I'll also, because I do eat chicken, we generally always have a cooked chicken in the house because we spoil our dogs. They get yeah. chicken mixed in oh, with their... Oh, <laughs> wow. Nice. And there's always one. So I chop some off and throw it in. And in fact, I think I'm going to try and be good again today. And I think I'll have that because it's delicious. Yeah. Like, I love it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's just you forget they're really good sources of nutrition and you know frozen just such a lovely convenient item i also have frozen fruit uh, as well so frozen berries frozen black currants frozen yeah. uh blackberries like they're, they're all great and they lock in a lot of those polyphenols that we know are so good for brain health as well as cardiac health as well but anyway you have just been amazing first of all tell us where people can buy your app oh, cool. or, yeah. or download your app and then also i see you have your doctor's kitchen on the shelf there oh, yeah. i actually have a copy of that book as well lovely recipes in it you have two other books like yeah. you're only 36 for goodness <laughs> sake i wrote my first book in 2019 <laughs> yeah so you can get the app from the app store it's available on iphone just took look up the doctor's kitchen it'll be there um and yeah the books you can find on the doctorskitchen.com and we have a new newsletter we share recipes there every week there's obviously the podcast and the instagram oh, and, and the podcast the yes so, the podcast yeah is which absolutely you've amazing. kindly been a guest on as well it was lovely that was really well received oh, i was just a, an absolute honor to be a guest on it i was delighted to be asked and just did want to ask you that so you i read in some interview that you mm. did that you know when you saw the benefits you just wanted to share them and yeah. that resonates with me when i found research on brain health and stuff i just wanted to shout from the rooftops because i just said yeah everybody needs yeah. to know this you must know this i because someone said to me once i said oh i'd love to do this and that and you know really sort of make a business out of this and someone who actually is a real entrepreneur worth millions said to me sabina you are not an entrepreneur. You're an evangelist. <laughs> like, <laughs> kind of makes sense. You know, I, I just kind of want to tell people about these things. But you said you really started off with this blog. I think I presume it was a video blog. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. how did you go from that to this huge podcast to yeah. being on the BBC regularly, just exploding in a really short period of time? It, it was, what happened? Did someone famous see you? Or? No. <laughs> no, it was it was very strange and uh, non-calculated. I mean, like the reason why I started the Doctor's Kitchen in the first place was really to try and help patients eat better. And I wanted to save time. So I started doing videos on YouTube of how like how to make oats and how to, how to make like small meals and stuff and what the benefits were. I just wanted to share that with patients. And then I it was 2015. Yeah, 2015. Exactly. So you know, seven years ago now, or six and a half years. And um, I just started from that. And I was working in Australia at the time. And when I got back, I got approached by a literary agent very early on. And then I had, uh, obviously, you know, meetings and they wanted to do TV and stuff. And they actually suggested that I do a podcast. So I started my podcast relatively early on in 2017. And I just fell in love with it. Like yourself, you know, the privilege to interview incredible people who are experts in their field and have genuine conversations that will change people's perception yeah. in their lives. 
amazing and i'm just yeah i'm i'm a, i'm in a very privileged position and i i'm very grateful for it you are indeed but it is funny i started my podcast because my literary agent said yeah. you need to do a podcast <laughs> you know and i suppose i have a background in television and film exactly and, you know, yeah talk the hind legs off a donkey so i loved it i had wanted to do one in the past you know had sort of half entertained the idea but um yeah it's lovely in and of itself just to do it even if nothing else came from it but folks you know download that app you get a 14 day free trial period if apps are not your thing listen to the podcast if podcasts aren't your thing there's the books you know what even just go on to instagram like honestly rupees instagram <laughs> is a bit like yeah it's food porn but yeah. healthy food porn <laughs> yeah healthy food porn that's the way that's the way i like to describe it <laughs> healthy food porn thank you so much rupee it's I just really been amazing it. I do like to finish oh, on yeah. asking my guests to share just one thing about surviving and or thriving in yeah. life. Yeah, I think um, for me, like I said right at the start, I, I think actually having an affirmation every day that you read that's personal to you, you don't necessarily need to share it with anyone. Honestly, I think that's actually one of the best things that I've done. You know, I could talk about nutrition. I could talk about like yep. adding one more fruit, vegetable, nut or seed every meal time. You know, I could do all those different things. But actually, when it comes to thriving and surviving, I think your mindset is so important. So if you can book in 30 seconds with yourself in the morning. And I think it's quite important to have it in the morning and affirm to yourself, you know, some confidence boosting tips or some so a, a little mantra, if you like, that stays with you throughout the day. And you can commit to that every day. For me, it's been really game changing when it comes to going through times where you do need to thrive and you need to you know you need to survive actually just push through so for people who aren't familiar with that sort of terminology of affirmation Mm. because it's in that sort of zone really around meditation and some people don't see that as part and may not be familiar yeah i know the word you can look it up in the dictionary but what really is at the core of an affirmation yeah so i'll give you the example of mine and it's uh, a couple of sentences that i read out loud to myself every morning And it says along the lines of rupee, I address myself, you're doing a very challenging thing and you will get through it. Remember, persistence is key. Consistency is king. And you will achieve everything you want to one step at a time. And so just that I read every single morning. And every time I listen to that, it gives me a little, you know, pep talk. It gives me a little prep in the morning. And it doesn't have to be for, you know, if you're doing a business or you're running an app, which is what I'm doing and which is what I'm sort of channeling that energy for. It can be from, you know, the simple day-to-day tasks. You know, sometimes a challenge for somebody is getting out of their house and going for a walk every day. Sometimes yeah. it's parenting. Sometimes it's the job that they don't like as much or they're looking to move to a new one you know everyone has their own unique challenges and that's why i think having an affirmation that's personal to you that really resonates with you is something that would be really pivotal i think for for people on a day-to-day you know and you've just reminded me like it doesn't have to take that form of first thing in the morning is really good and i always say you know smile first thing in the yeah, morning it really sets you up for the day yeah. yeah but actually i've just realized my husband has never meditated in his life, wouldn't be his cup of tea, but always had a great self-confidence in himself Mm. that say I wouldn't have had. And I'm going back donkey's years since we were young, you know, when we got married first. And 
at the moment I he keeps saying to me stop being so down on yourself because you've gained weight because I still haven't lost it and that's so much part of who I am yeah. I've never been an overweight person do you know that kind of way anyway but what he would do every morning and it's just something that he has done naturally and I reckon from that has stemmed his natural self-confidence he would get dressed in the morning he'd put on it and he'd say god you look good <laughs> do, do you know what I mean you know, like he would tell himself, yeah. you know, something, oh, you're looking sharp, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah. And I think he did it from a sense of humor perspective, yeah. but your brain listens. Totally. That's the thing. What you say to yourself, the stories you tell yourself, whether they're affirmations, whether they're repetitive thoughts, yeah. they make your reality. There's actually, and this is going to sound like woo-woo, but there is no independent reality. It is the story that you tell yourself. That's what your brain then creates because it can't take in all the data that's around you to create an actual physical reality. It will be attuned to the things you tell it to be attuned to. So yeah. it will be attuned to the fact that I feel, oh my God, my belly, these are tighter, at, you, you know, because yeah. I'm tuning to that. Whereas actually, if I let that go and tune to something else, I'd probably be far happier each day and may actually the weight may fall off because often when the, you focus on that you go oh I'm hungry oh I need to eat you know when actually you're not really yeah. anyway a pleasure as always my Thank pleasure you honestly so, it was so lovely <laughs> and you, uh, I'm so much I stole loads of your time but when I have you <laughs> so good <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you found something in this episode that will help you to survive and thrive in life. For me, it's the simple practical tip to pack my freezer with frozen vegetables. It's been a game changer for me, especially as currently I'm in the midst of renovating my new home, trying to get our eight acre garden under control on top of writing, speaking, podcasting and contributing to TV and radio. Knowing that I always have the ingredients for a tasty stir fry or a simple soup has helped me to avoid turning to unhealthy snacks or stodgy carbs. My name is Sabina Brennan and you have been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. You can follow me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.